Be the right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. All right, guys, welcome back to the podcast. Going to get to Eddie Pepperell here shortly. Just wanted to note, this was recorded on Thursday night of Players' Championship Week. Uh, Eddie's run towards the championship title uh, had not happened yet, uh, which will become pretty obvious here pretty shortly, but just wanted to note that. We did not get a chance to talk to him after the tournament. Um, But, uh, yes, enjoy the interview. Eddie is an incredible guest. We were very thankful we could have him on and appreciate his time as always, and thank you for tuning in. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Lang Up podcast. Second visit, uh, first time in person, Mr. Eddie Pepperell, you're in a lot different position, uh, I would imagine in life, but definitely in the world of golf than you were the last time you were on. Yeah, I just I was reminded on the way here of when we spoke two years ago, I was in Denmark, and what came to my mind was that week I, I had to play commando because I'd forgotten to pack any boxes, <laughs> right, which is the first time it's ever happened. And the other reason I, I just thought of it, I don't know why I thought of it, <laughs> uh, is because I went to the golf club one day and Richard Bland said to me, Ed, you just need to be careful because the hotel was like a U-shaped and you could see across the hotel. And he said to me, Ed, just be careful because I saw you walk into the bathroom yesterday. <laughs> Close. See with your, with your naked ass. Close your curtains. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I've come a long way like since the, then. The, the, uh, the standard hotel in New York. It sits above the High Line. It kind of straddles the High Line. And, you know, people... Like there's there's no tint on the windows, so people uh, have been caught doing things there. But then it's also very voyeuristic too. There's there's all sorts of uh, people that book those hotel rooms and oh, right. For that film reason. stuff on the other right, side. Yeah. yeah, I think this is a great opportunity to to call him Dick Bland, not Richard Bland, which <laughs> yeah, he should he should yeah. go by. I by don't the think way. he saw. Um, well, he would have needed uh, some form of device to see it. But uh, yeah. <laughs> we've got the European Max Homa on. Yes, is that, this is it. Is that accurate? Well, you've gotten kind of a reputation uh, on Twitter, even more so on Twitter since we since you were last on. What's that been like? And kind of have you enjoyed kind of the higher Twitter profile and social media? Um, I don't. I mean, I don't mind it. I don't dislike it. Don't get me wrong. I, I um, yeah, I, I feel like I've certainly of late in terms of the last few months, I, I haven't, um, you know, really tweeted very much at all, really. Um, I respond a lot more now. I'm replying to a lot of tweets. But, I, you know, I'm, uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I don't really try to do it for effect. You know, I, I offer, there's some things sometimes in my mind I'll tweet and other times I'll just leave it. But uh, You had some quotes about it this week, I think, at the first-timers press conference here at the Players. Yeah, I can't remember what I said. Um, it was two days ago. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I come here or wherever I go, people seem to talk of one of two or three things. It was historically either my blog or Twitter. People, uh, the blog never gets mentioned anymore, nor does my golf. My golf never got mentioned, which is not surprising. Um, which is an... In- which is an indictment of U.S. media. Well, it's right? an indictment of how bad I am. Um, uh, it's an indictment of a few things, but the, well, I think the fact that I am kind of known for my Twitter and and that type of stuff, um, and the various sound bites that may have come across the interviews, isn't isn't. I don't know. I don't know if it's so much a reflection of me as it is the rest of the world, or the rest of the media, or the rest of the you know the lack of willingness. Nobody else know. says anything. Exactly, it's so bland that you said you mentioned being kind of hungover at the British Open, and everyone yeah. just ran and went nuts exactly. with it. Exactly. And it's like not yeah. that big of a deal. Like you're definitely not the first person to do that. No, you're just no. maybe the, one of the few people that would. And stand it's up not and say the best it. round I've ever shot hungover either. So, uh, <laughs> which is that sounds like there's a story there. <laughs> yeah, well, I can't remember it. But, um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm sure I, shot, I think I've shot a better one. I have. Kings Barnes shot six under. I I played the. Daniel links with Kevin Peterson, who's a famous cricketer. And second day at Carnoustie, I was putting terrible. I snapped my putter on the third green. I had to play 15 holes at Carnoustie. Was this this year? This was two or three years ago. Okay. This would have been 15, I think, and I or 16. And uh, and I was 12 over through 10, putting with a lob wedge from the third onwards. And I honestly thought I wasn't going to break 90. And uh, and I, I think I shot 10 or 11 over, and I birdied the last. I hit driver three wood and I tapped in from four feet with a two iron and I was waving to the crowd it was the best throw <laughs> I've ever made um yeah I had a few trick that night and then played King's Barnes the next day and shot six under where'd you go was it the Dunvegan no I think I was on my own oh I, have, I wasn't on my own I had uh, a friend called Sheffy uh, big big Sheffy and uh, me and him just I had a fair bit to drink from memory 
And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't so see doing that watch. Did yet. you make the 54 hole cut? No, no. Oh. I was, well, no, I was, no, I needed to have shot. Um, it was 59, something like, you know, Pete Eli could have done, but uh, no. So uh, filling in a bit of details for what we intro at the top of the show, you've won twice since in, in 2018 as it is. Uh, I want to kind of go re- back and revisit Qatar and winning there and kind of, and you wrote about on your blog, uh, I know you, you think it's not being read anymore, but I still read it. And you wrote about kind of the perspective that came for, you didn't hit any drivers the week before in Oman, I think you wrote. Yeah, no. I think what I was hit, going on yeah. there? Just you were feeling a little blockage with the driver? I was struggling. <clears throat> which I tend to do in the months of January to March. I think I've had one top five in my career from January to April. So um, is that just because you're so t- tied into home base being England and you really put like put away the clubs from November, December? Maybe I kind of... You truly have an to, off season? I really switch off okay. and, and then I come back and I'm definitely heavier and um, a bit bigger. And then my swing seems to be terrible for a few months and I figure it out. But... Um, no, um, I was struggling in a man. I, th- I think I remember tweeting something the week before a man saying I'd figured it out. And by figuring it out, it was setting the ball up on the heel of the golf club. So I'd have to reroute the club somewhat so that my arms would come closer to my body at impact to hit you know a great impact position. And this was a great idea. I had it figured out. <laughs> and in practice, it was okay. And then my first tee shot with the driver in the tournament was the par five 12th in Oman and it's see all the way up the left there's loads of rocks and the wind was quite hard off the left so first true test and uh, I snap hooked it straight into the rocks it actually pinged off the rocks back into the fairway and I made an easy four in the end <laughs> but I didn't pull my driver out once after that for the rest of the week and yeah that particular swing field didn't last very long so, so I wasn't in a good spot with my driver but then I worked with a new coach the next week and he gave me some doable i would say would be the feelings i had but i still hit driver very few times in qatar so what flipped then from from oman to qatar um well i stopped setting up off the heel and the the new coach basically we just worked on my leg work and my hips and and i had a feeling where i was just basically trying to from it from the top of the back so we can get my left hip to kind of just go straight behind me so it was it was a nice feeling actually i'd never had that before it was always very um with my swing feels were always quite static that one wasn't and uh, and i drove the ball better for it so because it was quite a route and i know we talked about this a couple years ago on the podcast but a route to uh a kind of up and down route to getting to where you are now because you were you were progressing you were inside the top 100 in the world and you cut you lost your game and ended up losing your card and then you you found it shortly kind of after you might be the best example of the no laying up podcast bump ever (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh you climbed over 300 world ranking spots in the time but (laughs) Kind of your perspective on when you were struggling was always what was I found really interesting. And I remember the story you throwing a club up in a tree and stuff like that. With all you've been through, you know, the ups and downs in your career, ha- how much has your recent success really fulfilled you on a, per- on a personal level? Um, I don't know. That's hard to answer. I mean, I, I definitely, my mood definitely swings with my golf, um, which um, wasn't something I ever well, it wasn't something I wanted to happen or expected to happen, but it definitely did. And when I lost my card, you know, it, I had some times where it was a bit difficult, you know. Um, and then, yeah, the good times are, hey, I mean, it's... The good thing with me is I don't I don't ever get too low or too up. Like, I'm quite... I'm fairly consistent, I would say, and, and I'm pretty level-headed in many ways, emotionally, certainly. But, um, you know, it definitely swings somewhat. But, but to say I'm fulfilled by the good golf... I don't know. I mean, I only ever feel satisfied if things have gone well. You know, I do have a feeling now and again of, you know, real satisfaction. Um, you know, a couple of events spring to mind. The US Open in 2017 was a big one. Um, that was, a, I came 16th at Aaron Hills and that was a huge result at the time for me. Maybe, you know, probably one of my best performances ever, to be honest, relative to where I was in my career. So, you know, there's been various times where I felt hugely satisfied and I get some fulfillment from that. But um, in that context, how does the win at the British Masters stack up to Qatar? Yeah, I mean, and um, and do do you only win tournaments that are named the Masters? <laughs> we'll find out soon. <laughs> um, that would be a shock. Um, yeah, it would. Uh, did, well, like, did that feel like a validation of sorts that that you felt like you needed, or was it just a not bonus? really? I mean, I remember um, the Scottish Open last year. I came second, but. I was leading at one point and Brandon Stone shot a great final round to beat me and I kind of felt like 
I did everything pretty much well enough to win that tournament. I was very comfortable being in that position, leading, and I expected to win. And okay, I didn't win, but, you know, it felt as good as, really. Um, British Masters, as soon as I I was playing really bad on the Wednesday, and then as soon as I shot 500 on the Thursday and got into a couple of swing fields, I kind of thought, well, knowing what historically has happened with swing fields in progression in tournament, I just could only see kind of good things for the rest of that week. And I just thought I was going to win the tournament straight straight from the Thursday, and I expected myself to lead all the way through, um, which I did. So, I mean, there was definitely an uh, my mentality had definitely come on somewhat from Qatar and, and obviously years gone by. And as, um, a, f- as a follow-up to that, like very, very radically different courses and, and conditions. Yes. British Masters, was, it was, I think it was pissing sideways the one the day. Sunday was terrible. Yeah. Um, well, the weird thing is I didn't, I didn't feel like I played amazing at the British Masters. You know, with Qatar, I hit the ball tee to green really well. Um, so statistically, I actually lost on the greens that week relative to the average player in the field and I still won. Um, British Masters, I didn't hit the ball as well, but played a little better. So it didn't, but but I still expected my, that there was just something about the course and the way I was playing that there was a, there was a definite serenity and a calmness to it, you know. And I kind of felt like yeah, I was pretty much in control. Um, but that was satisfying. I mean, for sure, you know. It's but but I don't really give much. I haven't historically given any credence or much to any event I've ever played in. So it's like this week. Someone said to me, you know, what is it? Is this the fifth major? And I was like, well, of course it's not. I mean, not in my opinion. I would put Wentworth ahead of this event because for me, I've only really known Wentworth as being, in my mind, a bigger event uh, because I've been part of it. And that's so, I, I, because I haven't got that kind of, whatever you want to call it, historical context or sense of tradition, you know, I struggle to kind of place them. So it just feels like if I'm playing good golf, well, you know, I want to, I can contend. And if not, it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really... Those two tournaments are always in the same conversation as the, you know, the potential fifth major, whatever that means. How would you compare them, having played in both? I would say I'm going to give the players' lounge to Wentworth. Players' lounge to Wentworth. <laughs> Just roast dinner every day if you want it. Great service. They don't. What does that up. mean? Roast, roast <laughs> dinner. Um, you don't have a roast that dinner. That's like, well, <laughs> meat, vegetables, potatoes, Yorkshire pudding. I mean, versus gravy. what do they have here? Well, actually, my girlfriend made me a lovely salad today. It's tuna. Um, what's tuna that's kind of raw? Oh, it's... Um, sashimi. Yeah, sashimi. Yeah. Ah, yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> and something like that. Um, thing wrong, it's good here, obviously. Um, the thing is, you know, the ancillary stuff to an event, which doesn't really bother me, you know, like obviously this week, you're given cars and the, the service is incredible. But, you know, I, 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 I really like the feel of Wentworth. Um, the golf courses are quite different, but both very testing i mean i've always thought when was a, a great course but i've always felt quite uncomfortable on it you know this is obviously a great course um yeah it'd be tough to compare them but the thing is any event in america always kind of feels bigger i mean just because there's more people and, and there's more you know generally drunk people shouting things at you well and i think kind of what you're alluding to there too is on the european tour wentworth is a elevated event in every sense like every mm-hmm. event on the pga tour has a certain you know, kind of floor to it. And the players is yeah. slightly above that, but European tour has such a wide variety. I mean, like yeah. the fields you'll get in Portugal and Sicily yeah. don't really represent kind of the, the, the cream of the crop for Europe. So yeah. it is like a very big, and maybe that, I think that probably was what the players used to be like. It probably was a way bigger deal than some of the smaller tournaments in the seventies and whatnot. Yeah. But now every tournament's just got so much money behind it. It's hard to really get super jacked up for this this event yeah that's a good point and that's something i would agree with you know that's part of, i mean i think we're over consumed in in every aspect of the word you know in terms of not just golf but any and any tv show or um any kind of tv show but how much do you have to get rid of to make the players championship attractive how much do you have to get rid of to make majors attractive do you know what i mean it's i think you have to get rid of a lot and that isn't going to happen um always the argument I make with the Six Six Nations is the rugby the Six Nations is a big deal and it's actually happening at the moment and I think it's a big deal because it's five of five matches a year like people get up for that and that's what sport used to be and I think we've lost that And, and that's just you know to steal a phrase that isn't mine as a problem of progress really because it's just a sign of the time the sign of success but the ramifications the unintended consequences of that unfortunately I think is overconsumption and therefore lack of general interest Eddie, how have you changed your approach or your schedule since you've gotten in the top 
50 in the world like if, has there been a bigger impetus to play here in the u.s just because there's just more money at stake or, or how have you changed your schedule uh, it's got nothing to do with the money it's the, my schedule pretty much has written itself this year because being top 50 at the end of the year you know gave me all the well pretty much all the majors the wgc's and then access to four potentially pga tour events if, if i want i'm only going to play three so i looked at it and it was just amazing because i could play in the desert and then come to Mexico and play all the way through um, in America, apart from the British Masters, all the way through to Ireland. So obviously missing Qatar was, you know, it was a thing. I mean, I didn't want to have to do that. But when I'm playing definitely Mexico and definitely the players, the schedule would have been a nightmare to get to Qatar for last week and back here. And and I said, listen, the only way I would do that, <laughs> it would obviously take you being paid a lot of money to be or be paid to money to be there but when i know that the european tour are in charge of that there's no way i'm taking money from the european tour if some super rich guy wants to pay me some money to go somewhere you know i'd definitely consider it but when it's coming out of the european tour's pockets then i, I couldn't bring myself to do that so um that that pretty much was the definite no for me in that in that sense and you know and then yeah the fact that i could play the arnold palmer was why wouldn't you you know do you want to play the U.S. tour full-time? Is that a goal of yours? No. Point? No, not no, at all. it's not. I mean, if literally if someone said to me, now you could have this schedule for another decade, then I would absolutely take it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it's an amazing schedule I've got this year. I mean, I love playing in Europe. Uh, and I've never historically traveled too well. I mean, I think I've traveled better in America than I have certainly in Asia and Africa for a number of reasons. But um, What's your favorite part of the Euro tour schedule? Well, I always, I always like the links. Uh, the, I mean, this year, the Irish, the Scottish in the Open. Can't wait to obviously do those. But also the end of the year. I mean, I've always tended to play better in September and October. But this year, what we've got, Dunhill Links, Wentworth, Portugal Falls around that time, which is an event that I enjoy, practically holiday. Um, you know, there's, there, that's a nice time of year to be playing golf. Um, yeah. Italy as well might be a bit later. So, um, yeah, I, I... The Rolex series. Pretty much. I guess I've just pretty much given you the Rexes. But there are, you know, things like KLM, which is in Amsterdam. I always yeah. play that. I always go to Czech and play that one. I mean, that's 1 million euros, you know. Yeah. That's um, less than what the winner picked up last week. But it doesn't really bother me. I've always had a good time going there. It's cool that the BMW PGA is late. Yes. It's late in the year this year. Yeah, it's going to be unbelievable, yeah. I think. Yeah. We interrupt this podcast for an important PSA from the Merch Czar. The ERC soft golf ball with the triple track technology is legit. Aren't the best innovations always the most obvious? I mean, of course, three massive straight lines on a golf ball will help me finally pick a line and actually stick to it. And I'll tell you what, keeping putts between the mustard and mayo in route to a classy one putt bogey is a real thrill. So if you're looking to steal a couple strokes on the green, Pick up a box of the ERC Soft Callaway Balls at CallawayGolf.com. And as always, tell them I sent you. And if you don't putt better, you could come at me on Twitter. It's NGSHUNLU. Now let's get back to this week's pod with Captain Solly Sollenberger and his sultry baritone. I want to circle back to Qatar actually a little bit. There's two things I wanted to ask about that. Um, the, even the, you know, I was watching the highlights getting ready for this and even the, the, the broadcasters comment on, on you dealing with the nerves and how you looked nervous out there. What was going on internally for you trying to win your first event? I wasn't that nervous. I mean, I unusually had it because I knew I had this new swing feeling. Um, I've only ever really struggled under pressure because of a swing feel. I mean, I've, I've got a theory that the reason Zach Johnson has more tournament wins than say Henrik Stenson is because of what he has to achieve and what he has to feel to achieve a good shot under pressure. I mean, things change. So depending on what you have to feel to produce a shot, I think has a huge impact on whether you do or don't produce it. All of a sudden, I had a feeling where I could rotate as hard and fast as I want and it would generally produce a good result. Well, I was excited for that because I've never had that. So um, I wasn't I wasn't very nervous at all, you know. And uh, the only, the, the thing I've also found historically when you're in contention is the only thing that can sit, the only thing that can make you nervous is a setback or something that happens that's unusual so the thing that happened on the saturday where i hit the rock and i fired it three times i mean that's an unusual thing to happen and it can really throw your it can just throw you and um i had a bit of that on the sunday where i hit it right on 15 i had to pitch out and all of a sudden you know things aren't there isn't the consist there isn't the, the momentum of the round you know the rhythm has been upset sometimes that can i think uh, have an effect but 
And on that particular moment, you the the broadcast was talking about the the effect your caddy had in talking you into making that layup shot on yeah. fifteen. And you wrote on your blog as well about how big of an impact your caddy had on that. Yeah. What what in what specific way did your caddy like steer you home to this to that? Victory? Well, he definitely got the club right on the last. I mean, I wanted to hit wedge. He he had me in nine, and, and that was a great shout. Um, it was obviously a good decision chipping out on fifteen. I mean, the shot could have come off, but it, it would have been a crazy shot in hindsight with a five iron. I mean, it, it was uh, wouldn't have been a pleasant one to have to take on. No laying up, though, right? No laying up. That was the thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, part of the thing with, with having to chip out was that I kind of knew at the same time I've still got a six iron in. It's not like you've got a nine iron in. I mean, it's kind of tough to get up and down with a six iron. And I nearly did. but um, And at that point in the round, actually, I was a fair few ahead. I mean, Ollie had a great finish to kind of put pressure on me, but... You know, at that time, I think I was probably three ahead. So, I, you know, I felt like chipping out. Obviously, it made a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I want to ask you to unpack the Henrik Stenson ZJ thing a little bit. I, I don't... Is Zach's swing more repeatable than Henrik? Is that why he's able to... No, I just... I just... Um, I think under pressure, um, things move differently. Things feel differently. Things move at different speeds, whether it's your arms or your body. Um, and... You know, when I watch Zach swing, I just have a, a feeling that he just rotates hard. I mean, he's, you know, he's got fairly strong club face, fairly strong grip. So he can probably just get to the top and think of rotating. Whereas if you're an arm swinger, which I think Henrik probably is in terms of his feels, I mean, it's, it's, it, I would say, it's not to say that you can't achieve great performances, of course, under pressure, but it's to say that on the long run, you know, it can be, yeah, it, worse things can happen, I think, when you're having to, think about your arms when your body wants to move fast because that's just what happens under pressure so you know that was um that's my theory i could well be God, wrong you got me in my head now i'm, well, a, that's I'm an arm gonna, swinger no, and I'm, there's more variables and that's all what that. i was gonna say yeah. is how how technical are you with your swing and how did you, i always picture tour players like you know did they grow up and they were just so much more technical about their swings than i was because i didn't ever think of anything like that and i'm like maybe that's where maybe that's where it's, it went it's wrong almost like me. a schism like you're you know either I mean? arms or body well right? no i'm just curious how well, technical you are and, and if you're not when it came into play basically i mean yeah i never used to think about these things but i think this is the thing isn't it? if you want to get really really good at something it's hard to get there without having to especially a game like golf, because I'm a believer that it's a game of skill and so therefore you need great technique. Um, so how do you improve your technique? You know, you either need to be guided down the right path or you have to do it kind of yourself. Um, I tried just I tried just never practicing and it just didn't, <laughs> yeah, it didn't work out. Yeah, so well. I, I kind of see what you're saying. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, you know, it's... Um, I, I know I have a few... I have... I probably play golf with two or three different swing fields and I have done four the best part of two years. So my, my, I'm actually working with two coaches now. But um, God, you're the coach I worked with last year. me out, man. <laughs> I'm afraid to ask what the swing fields are. Yeah, well, no. So so with a, I have a driver swing feel, and then I have a separate swing feel with a three wood. Um, and Bifurcation. I have a, and I have a separate one with, with my irons. It sounds like club, um, starting to sound like club pro guy here pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, but I do. So with my driver, I only ever have one swing feel in, and I basically can't draw my driver. What is the swing feel? It's with rotation with my hips. I set the ball on the toe, and I try to rotate my hips. And, and you're not going to turn your hands over? You just, no. Just and the reason it. I set it on the toe is because I have a tendency to swing a little flat with my driver, and then as my hips fire, my kind of arms come further out in front of me on the downswing, so I basically middle it. So I know that's going to happen, but it allows me to keep rotating, and it's very anti-left feel, so I like that. The three-wood is a reroute feel. That's why I have a, I have a super flat three-wood. So basically, the heel never digs in, so the club face never turns over. So if I hit my three-wood left, I have to put a terrible, terrible swing on it, which I very rarely do, and my bailout with the three-wood tends to be right. Um and my iron feels, um, I, I sometimes feel reroute like I did at the British Masters, but on the Sunday I hit a lot of poor iron shots, particularly mid and short irons, because I know with that swing feel my body can outrace my arms a bit. So I like to feel like my arms come down a bit more against my back and my chest with my irons. But that requires a better backswing. So uh, I'm always kind of working on, well, with me, my iron play needs to be great if I'm going to win or come close to winning a golf tournament, because um, my statistics show that every tournament I've ever done well in, um, iron play has been great. And I've never, ever done well in a golf tournament where my irons haven't been really good relative to the field. So. What do you struggle the most with? What's the one shot or the one thought? Or... Um, well, I don't. I'm, I basically can't draw my driver. Um, 
I'm not very good at soft chips around the green with a lob wedge where you've got to loft it up. God, you um, speak my language. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, but I, it really depends. I mean, like my short game, I had never practiced my short game. But statistically, last year, I was one of the, be- one of the better guys on, on tour um, with my short game. And, and that's because my short game it correlates real close with my irons. So it's basically the same thing for me. So but when my irons are good, my short game's good. And when my irons aren't good, my short game's kind of bad. That so. was the whole Tiger release patterns thing, right? When everyone was exactly. making fun of his chipping. Exactly. He and never he's got... like, no, I'm between release patterns. He's like, no, come on, it's chipping. It's different. Exactly. It's also, it's the on, the iron, on the iron putting front, how much of that is psychological? Where you're you're basically playing offense, like you're you're putting for birdie, you're 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 on the offensive instead of instead of you know scrambling to make pars. And well, there's some of that with the putting. I've always felt like yeah, I've probably held more par putts than birdie putts from yeah. a particular say six foot. That's probably true, and there's definitely some psychology in that. Probably the stats show that professional golfers make a six foot par putt more than a six right. foot birdie putt. It's yeah, crazy. that yeah. doesn't surprise me. Yeah, um, that makes me feel better and worse at the same time. I yeah. Think. But okay, you know the whole too, the whole tiger thing was fascinating, you know, because yeah. I had a period a few years ago where I literally had I get the yips around the greens for like two weeks, and then it went, and I was like, I've always been a good chipper, and it was purely technical, and it and it literally is, you know, Tiger Woods doesn't just get the yips. I mean, the problem with the yips is people only see it when it's happening, and then they think that's a psychological problem, which at that point it is. But how does it start? It never starts as a psychological, psychological leader. It starts as a technical problem, and then it's like a monster. You know, everyone's got potential monsters in their pockets or on their shoulders, but it's small, and you have to keep them small. The best golfer on the planet is the guy with the smallest monsters. <laughs> it's not the guy that doesn't have any. Every fucker's got monsters. It's just Dustin probably has a great handle on all of his little gremlins, whereas so that's some the, guys doesn't. It's you know? crazy that you say that like that because I feel like the last two or three years watching Jordan Spieth. He's made absolutely everything, but like his the the grip's crazy and he's cross-handed and all that, and like he's making everything and he looks super comfortable with it. But I, I can tell there's a monster on his shoulder. Yeah, it does you look know? like he's and playing like with a monster just, on his shoulder now. He's just yeah. like he's puster. just trying yeah. to fight off that monster. Yeah, for as long as possible, and now he's finally dealing with that monster, and he's going to be good when he gets to the other side of the monster. But yeah, you know? I mean, yeah, so what? Like, so what's your biggest monster? Well, historically, it was my driver. So, you know, and I'm gradually... The thing is also, the hardest thing with golf is that monster can grow so fast, so big, so fast. And trying to shrink him, I mean, it's it's just a, it's a fucking shit show. When you, you know, it probably gets bigger when you're trying to shrink it. Possibly. I mean, possibly. Or what probably happens is it actually doesn't, but other monsters get bigger <laughs> because you're not focusing on them. And then... Is, aren't, aren't you... Like, this is like life. Like, I know we're talking about golf, but this is really golf just is life. life. Yeah. Golf is life. For sure. I'm in your front room and there's just flags everywhere. Golf is life. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying we could change the, some of these words and we could be having a, a, self-help, a self-help podcast on a different topic. Absolutely. You're, we can, we can Eddie, go there if you're you You're giving want. me anxiety. <laughs> Tron's monsters um, are growing as we're well, speaking yeah. right now. But that, yeah, anxiety. It's funny you bring that. You know, that only ever correlated with... Um, bad technique for me you know i would struggle to sleep when i was hitting my driver off the planet you know i never ever go to bed worrying about let's say let's take sawgrass i will never go to bed worrying about um the third hole it's a mid iron i'm good i'm generally very good with my mid irons i will never worry about that but if you say would i potentially be worried about the 18th tee shot if it's hard into off the left well yeah i mean yeah potentially you know there's like like i'm sure 16 this week is exceptionally tough for you because I'm you don't three draw wood. your I'm you don't draw your driver and no. you're hitting three wood and you're exactly. laying back a little bit and but I hit a three wood there yesterday over three hundred yards. You know, I went in there with a three iron. So the three wood I've got is super strong. So that's why I've got a super strong three wood. So don't get me wrong, it, it gives me holes elsewhere in the bag. It doesn't really matter because I I'm 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 uh, I'm filling up the holes at the in the area of the game where I feel like it gives me most comfort, you know, and, and so, yeah. Just because I think people are way into the equipment stuff, can you talk through your bag setup and how you picked? Like, that's really interesting is, you know, I have a really strong three-wood because basically you want to hit it both ways off the tee is what you're kind of Yeah, so, like. I mean, my ping... So what, you my, go from driver three-wood to... Driver, so this week, driver three-wood to three-iron. I always play with four wedges, so um, I'm always lacking a five-wood or a two-iron or something like this, um, which, you know, I've noticed the last couple of weeks... It definitely would have been beneficial to have a five wood. But it's a big, have you found it's a bigger deal 
on this side of the pond so far because it's softer because it's more target golf yeah i mean five would would have come in probably a couple times today um i'm just into the par fives um my ping my ping driver i mean uh, the reason i've got it in play and the reason i keep going back to it is because it's got a lot more spin on it it's super safe i mean it's the amateur's version it's not even the the lower it's not even the lst g400 it's like what you'd buy off the shelf but i'm kind of happy with that i mean <laughs> you know i hear I generally speaking hit very few bad ones with it and it's a very safe club my three was the complete opposite my, i want my three wood to go as fast with as little spin as possible it's a different swing feel i've got a different history so they're two completely different clubs and uh, and my irons are you know somewhere in between yeah i'm curious kind of now that you're at this elevated you know level of golf and you're playing in these events with all these huge names are you look do you find yourself looking around a little more looking down the range at the people you're playing with and kind of being amazed or do you feel like you truly belong here oh no my problem isn't looking at other people on the range my problem is like what happened today on the 18th green i've got a 20 foot putt to read and there's a big tv screen <laughs> next to the green showing the golf and i'm just stood there watching the golf <laughs> so uh, that's my problem i i watched the, the golf you know I, and i kind of enjoy doing that so um but I couldn't give a monkey's like, you know, I've never seen Bubba hit a ball. I don't even think, I don't think I've seen Tiger hit a ball. Um, I walked past Rory in Mexico, hit a driver. He was carrying it 390. I thought, fuck this. Um, you know, um, I, I don't really care about the other guys, you know. Um, what what drives you and what drove you? What motivated you? Is it is it an inward perfection or because I think a lot of guys would, you know, they watch a ton of golf and, you know, they, they see Tiger and, and you know, are chasing certain guys. Randy's still talking about life, by the way. I know. I'm like, I guess we can couch this in golf terms if you want, but no, no, I, I, I always have a, I always feel bad about answering this question this way. Um, and I think it's, I just don't, I'm going to say, I just don't want to be poor. And that's, and I'll say that not because being poor is a bad thing, right? I'm, I'm not trying to make that statement. But what I'm saying is when I've, having felt what I felt now, having had some of the success I've had and certainly having earned some of the money I've earned and I knowing what it's afforded me in terms of many things in my life, I kind of, I kind of keep, want to keep that, you know, I don't want to go back to where I once was. And so, you know, honestly, I've only been, I've only ever felt most driven off my worst failures or my, or my worst feelings, you know, whether it was my accountant calling me up after Q school and I just turned pro to say I was in debt and I needed to find some money or whether it's, really struggling enough to for, say for two months and not being able to hit a drive you know these kind of things or losing my card that's where I tend to get my motivation and 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 the, the problem with that is that it isn't sustainable in many ways and when I'm at a position like now where I've had some good success for a while you know how motivated can I be but the one good thing that did happen that I will say last year is once I started reaching higher levels and higher standards I kind of kept motivating myself actually I kind of I was finding some motivation within myself to. What was to the new motivation? Just like to stay at that level, to keep being at that level. I, I, did I you would, pick specific stuff, or like what? Like what specifically? It, it was did specifically you probably with my iron play and the ability to say hit a seven iron or six iron exactly the way I want to hit it, dead straight. And that it, wasn't that wasn't statistically based. That was just feel based. Like it was it was you versus yourself. Yeah, I mean, saying, I know hey, what I that know I know what the ability to do that gives me in terms of the stats and the results. So I know it's important for me, but um, and so that's partly what drives that. But um, yeah, you know, once I realised, once I got in 2017, I got so good with my irons, and I, it was so effective, and at, to a d- degree last year at similar weeks as well. That I I know that's my DNA, so that's given me motivation. All of a sudden, that's one thing that the stats have helped me with. Actually, it's just able to have in some form of identity. You know, I sound like I should be part of the LGBTQT society there, but um, I, I do. Sets, feel your, like, sets your high water mark. You yeah, know, you know I've, where you're. I've got an identity. Finally, I finally have a home. <laughs> I've got a home. Six times. So you say you? I mean, you you obviously really enjoy watching golf, right? As yeah, on the 18th green today, you you, mm. you know, I'll just watch golf. But I'm fascinated. Do you watch golf for the players or do you watch golf for the game itself? And I, and I kind of, I, I know that might not be the best question. It reminds me of, I've been around some basketball coaches mm-hmm. and they'll watch film and they'll watch games and, and they are truly just watching the game. Like it, it doesn't even, they just recognize the players by numbers. It doesn't even really matter who the players are necessarily mm-hmm. that yeah. they're watching the game for, for the sake of the game. Yeah. And I'm curious if that's, 
I'm just fascinated, you know, you're a huge golf fan, you watch a lot of golf, and then when you get out there, it's like, oh, I've never seen Bubba or Tiger. It's, you know, it doesn't really <laughs> Yeah, I mean, me. I, well, yeah, that's, that's a <laughs> fair point, actually. Um, I mean, I wouldn't stop by, yeah. you know, I certainly wouldn't stop by to watch these guys hit balls on the range. So I guess that kind of answers your question to a degree. But it, it, I kind of, I guess what I like when I watch golf is, well, iconic holes or particular shots or or a particular swing it could be anybody that's got a great move um it would be the move you know and i guess i would relate that to the basketball point in terms of the pattern the historic yeah. pattern if i see someone move somewhat remotely like ben hogan i'm going to tune in cameron champ i'm going to tune in because it's like there's an incredible mm-hmm. action happening here and i, I kind of want to be part of that so obviously it comes back to the individual um but it also i guess relates somewhat to a pattern or a move or something you know historic in a way if that makes any sense do you think professional golf over the last five to ten to twenty years has gotten homogenized then in that regard and you see less of those unique swings or less of those things that make you want to tune in possibly however you could probably watch all the golf swings of say the 70s and not only do they wear great trousers but um <laughs> they you know all the left feet generally come up off the ground yeah. and they stamp back down with their left knee and there's a lot more lag there's a lot more you know whatever and and it looks different and but they probably all kind of done that back Pretty then the same, yeah. so it's like it's it's easy to say well the modern era is whatever it is what it is all the same but actually maybe the 70s was all the same i mean maybe the 40s was all the same yeah you know, sometimes you have to have that wider perspective. And and that's probably true because I think I would think that way of many, not just golf, of many, many things, you know, that happen in life. Who's so. your favorite player? Sergio. Sergio. Yeah. Why was that? Shot making, you know. Um, yeah, pure shot making. You mentioned, uh, you mentioned something about watching golf on the 18th green, but you also had a, you tweeted something a couple of weeks ago about watching golf here in the U.S. So for people that don't know the difference between kind of how golf is presented on TV in the U.S. And Actually, how we have to take a commercial break right now. So I, that's a great question. Tron, Tron, settle down. Settle down, Tron. <laughs> guys, I'm going to walk into the room. Tell us about what your experience was. Is this your first time watching golf on TV in the U.S.? No, I, I have watched it before. Um, it wasn't just watching. I mean, it wasn't just the golf, you know. I, that's why I didn't specifically refer to the golf. I actually said TV in America. And I was watching a film, I think it was The Accountant, which I love. I've seen it once. Uh, but, but now, because I've been in America three weeks, I've actually seen The Accountant, I think, on five different occasions now. <laughs> and I've only seen the film twice. Is that you with know, Ben Affleck? Yeah. I think I've watched it in three hotel rooms. One, I watched it at the Fairmont in Austin. And, I mean, it was a break every fucking eight minutes or something. You know, I'm just like... Well, what, what, how are you supposed to watch this film? Late stage capitalism, yeah. That's, and then that's Randy's scene. And then obviously you get to the golf, and it's like I did tune in, and there was literally two shots shown between commercials, and I just kind of thought it's just bad. It's just bad, you know. If you want to watch the golf, I mean, it is. <laughs> well, what's it like in the UK? It's not as bad as that. Yeah. I mean, people were saying, "Oh, it's the same." No, it's not no, the same. Um, it's I mean, not, it's not I've... the same. At least in the UK, they go back to the studio. They're filling it with some form of analysis by you know. Well, so, so, so in the UK, are you getting the same feed? I think you are. I think we get the same feed. But you just have less commercials, but it they're depends. filling it with something exactly. else? It depends. So the, the bigger events, you'll have a separate feed. They'll have a, their own crew on there's site. A, there's like an international feed on yes. that. Yes. Okay. And then for the, small, the smaller events, you'll get a feed that is just straight, like... Like some, sometimes yes. I would... And you watch this for homie. three years, yeah. right? So I, when I lived yeah. in Holland, I would, like for the Masters, the announcers would be in Dutch. Like all the local... like announcers were there in Dutch and I imagine the same in the UK but the the smaller events it was just I would hear Jim Nance pipe straight into my TV that's that's a good point actually and the hardest events to watch in the UK are the smaller PGA Tour events Mm -hmm. but I can guarantee the Players Championship in the UK will be great coverage you know they've got their own team probably their own cameras possibly but the biggest events like you just said they'll be great to watch in the UK so you have like you have Brownie Radar. Uh, Ken doesn't work for Beamer. Uh, yeah, it'd be Radar yeah. and, and Beamer and those guys. But the European events, so like when it sticks out so much because when they go to commercial in the States, like the international feed will come on and they will go to the opposite side of the golf course and you will see Kevin Tway hitting his, you know, hitting his like something out some completely out of left field. It has no context at all. It's not like a crazy good shot. Mm-hmm. It's not like a noteworthy moment in the event, but it's like they're just showing you golf instead of commercial. And it's like, 
yeah, coming back here and seeing that. So really, I just wanted somebody other than our voice on this what? podcast talking about this. That it, it's uh, Eddie, yeah. do we like those bigger PGA purses? Or is it, <laughs> I, I can't help if these are uh, maybe the related. Thing. Or of course, this is the thing, isn't it? But um, at some point, it's no. not sustainable. Well, and that's my that's yeah. just exactly how it feels to me. There's there's just a feeling I have, and I don't know this stuff because I'm not that I'm not clever enough. But the feeling I have is that how is this sustainable? Like you know, actually. There can't be, I mean, people say TV drives money, but I can't believe there's enough people watching to actually drive that anymore. So what's driving it? It's the, it's the illusion that the TV still drives, or, or whatever. It's probably it's, possibly more than that. It's, oh, it's, called, it's okay. also called Tiger coming back healthy okay, and well, putting a Band-Aid on the, on, on the broken leg right. kind of thing. And then yeah. at some point, it's, they're, they're, squeezing, you know, they're squeezing the life out of something that... that and, and and the core audience is dying. Well, so the future is surely some form of streaming service or, or the way TV's gone and all these you know, Netflix, whatever. I mean, that's surely the future or a sort of future. But that but, is, to my mind, is so bad for golf. And this is why yeah. if we can talk about golf moving forward for a bit, because Please. I have times where I'm kind of optimistic because we have an aging population and that's great for golf. But I also have times where I think, well, hang on, the average baby boom is now beginning to retire. They still have all the money. You know, golf is specifically the PGA Tour is entirely... The next three to five years still. Are, I, I think yeah. we're okay. But when there's a wealth distribution or when there's a, a redistribution of the wealth, what, what does that look like? I cannot believe for a minute that there's enough people in my generation who are remotely interested in golf. So the economic future of golf, I kind of think, is dire on a number of on a number of fronts. Um, but then I'm kind of think, well, there's there's maybe reasons to be somewhat optimistic. So I was talking about it today actually with somebody, and and the fact that the future is the streaming services and all that, and it's it's a very it's kind of leaning into that niche audience, but serving serving a very enthusiast audience, the people that are diehard mm. golfers. And then the PGA Tour's marketing efforts and social media efforts and digital efforts have, have gone the complete opposite direction to where... That's what I was going to say. I think the hardest part for this, and, and I know I'm with you. I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm sure there's 50 million moving pieces that I have no idea, you know, are in place. But to me, it's it's like, okay, golf seems like the most expensive sport to televise. It seems like the, the sport that would be the hardest, most complicated thing. And now it also seems like it needs to be propped up by this audience that is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And these core people who are going to sit and watch, you know, sit and watch these 45 events throughout the season. Because, you know, the Masters isn't going to struggle for ratings. The Masters could go full streaming tomorrow and it would be awesome. Could, you know the FedEx St. Jude Classic goes all streaming tomorrow? Like probably not. That would probably be a horrible when, horrible if you thing. Bleed out those those core fans. It's like cool, who's going to be watching those other 30 tournaments? Here? And that's where I'm kind of yeah. looking at. It's like the yeah, the sum of all the parts is kind of what makes makes everything go and I don't know. It's so, it's an interesting So talking about it from a larger mm. perspective, like what else what other trends do you see not well, only in the I mean, really, I think it's instructive because our audience is largely U.S. based. Mm. What trends do you see in the U.K. or what do you see internationally? Well, I mean, the, the to my mind, the one good thing that golf's managed to do by keeping the European Tour on the PGA Tour is it's avoided the whole merger and acquisition craze that has happened in the last ten years, like across all businesses, you know, and, and all things. And and that don't get me wrong, it's it's great for guys like me at the top, but I am also very much aware that. At some point, it's not. And this was the big thing that I had against the Phil and the Tiger match, is that to me, it's not that that's right or wrong. It's just that it's not kind of wise. It's just not kind of wise to have a guy on $9 million in four hours because do they not realize the level of resentment that that causes and creates is, that creates among the wider population? And, you know, there's a good book, and it without me getting too... Um, apocalyptic um it's called the, <laughs> it's called Eddie, get a <laughs> it's called the great leveler and um it's written by a historian i think and and i haven't read it all but i know the gist of it and basically there are only ever four outcomes when inequality gets so bad and we're not there yet but not one of them is in any way desirable i mean they're all terrible terrible things and, and they affect everybody oh and they affect everybody yeah. in fact no yeah. the worst than that they affect the rich the most i mean this is why it's not wise to be gloating about the fact you've earned nine million in four hours, and not that Phil did or not that Tiger did, right? I haven't got anything against either of the individuals. I but think on a they're macro great. level, but on, yeah. the, on the what the perception of it is, I just don't think it's great, and so I kind of can't detach myself from that feeling that I have, and that's the feeling I have from everything I've read or what I've learned, and I could be wrong, and I hope I am, but 
I'm aware that I'm also profiting and benefiting from the way things are and, and things could get even better for me, you know, in the next five, 10 years. But I don't know. I kind of feel so like, how do you separate well, those things? I was going to say, you wrote, yeah. you wrote about that last year, actually, after, you know, you came into a lot of money after winning the, the Qatar Masters and your, your runner up finish at the Scottish Open was actually your biggest paycheck last year. Yeah. <laughs> the race to Dubai or the uh, Rolex series is yeah. a very real thing. Um, you kind of wrote about kind of going out and buying. <laughs> there it is right there. <laughs> you wrote about going out and buying, spending 10 pounds on some chocolates and feeling kind of ridiculous about that yeah. or kind of struggling with the balance of, you know, I've, I'm very well off. Now I've earned this, but have I earned this? Kind of, can you? I was wondering if you yeah, kind of explain. I mean, on it that. kind of, I won't say it cripples me, but um, it, you know, I, it it definitely um is something that crosses my mind quite regularly, you know, for sure. Um, I could switch off from it, and you could just say it's the way it is, but I kind of, you know, I don't, I don't like that either, really. I mean, there is an element of that for sure. Um, but I don't know. I just how does it square up with how you were raised? Like, were you raised in, like, what was your upbringing? In, in- I, I, listen, I think generally speaking, and in fact, this is the great, uh, the UK and Europe is, 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 I would say, definitely more egalitarian than over here, right? And that's not right or wrong. This is just the philosophical differences, especially around money um, between the two continents. When I tweeted the thing that I tweeted about the tiger and the film match, and I called it pathetic, which is the only word I regretted in that tweet, um, I, I tweeted it at a time because I was in the Maldives and, and everyone, <laughs> thanks, thanks to Rolex, um, I, um, I was enjoying myself in the Maldives. And were you in one of those, like, like those, those little rooms on stilts? Yeah, I was, yeah, we Literally, were in the sea. Yeah. yeah, we were in the sea. Um, it was pretty nice, actually. Although, yeah, I mean, I paid for it. I didn't get a free trip, you know, thanks to the Saudis. Um, but I, I, um, what was I going to say? Yeah, I tweeted that and everyone in the UK was asleep and everyone in the UK and the US was up. So everyone in the UK was asleep. Everyone in the US was up. And I got so much heat immediately. And I was like, oh my God, am I like well off on this opinion? Like I'm conscious am I like made. And then once everyone started waking up in Europe and the UK, almost unanimously everyone agreed with me. And it was a gr- it just highlighted to me the massive and the enormous cultural differences between the US and the UK and Europe, particularly surrounding money and yeah, I think naturally I'm going to be that way more inclined. It's not to say I'm a bloody communist because I'm not, but it's it's to say that I don't know something just doesn't quite feel right when there's this much dis- disparity. Well, I, I think that speaks to the the difference between PGA Tour golf and European Tour golf, though, and it being a true like entertainment product here. It is so commoditized. Is that the word? Well, it's yeah. kind of yeah. the Tiger effect too. Yeah, right? like, but where... it's so commercialized, and it is like it is squeezed out to the absolute max. And European Tour just has so much. I don't want to say luxury, but the, the ability to be so flexible and where they go. And, and it's just a wider range of possibilities. And over here, it is so commercialized. It's so sponsored. It is so heavily mm. influenced by the, you know, the people that make that sign the checks yeah. that it, it now I'm kind of, we, we have this conversation all the time. It's like, I don't know what, what we're watching. Like I want to watch like really pure golf, but at the same time, like I just want to see somebody hit it in the water four times on 17. Like it's just entertainment. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. Someone asked me. Someone asked me the other day at the first time as press conference whether I had any advice for the U.S. Open and setting the course up. And I was like, "Well, listen, let me tell you. Last year, I've never had so much fun watching all the pros have a nightmare yeah. at Shinnecott." God, you are like, real, you're speaking to a very friendly audience. <laughs> so Eddie. I was like, "I'm not going to sit here now as someone who's going to play in this event and tell you they should set it up because Eddie Pepperell and how boring was fun. how boring was Sunday when they put all the pins in the middle of the greens and exactly like, exactly yeah. Saturday was by far the most fun day to watch at the US Open <laughs> last year when everyone was losing this shit right we get paid well enough money to have to experience that yes. five times a year especially I mean, when it's not their organization putting that exactly. on exactly yeah. and, and I just kind of thought to myself that question well you know no I mean they can set up however they want however they want and actually in terms of an entertainment product it was great I mean you, people like to see people suffer you know I mean my, one of my favorite quotes is um, everyone is waiting for the end of the somewhere deep in their hearts everyone is waiting for the end of the world to come I mean it's it's a nice saying it's from the big short which is uh, another apocalyptic film that I like <laughs> well, which is second actually yeah, let me Ra- say. Randy well, has uh, radar lock on, on you right yeah, now yeah can I couple things one I, I need to point out the irony that we're talking to Eddie from from uh, England who, lamenting who? how much more egalitarian uh, you know the UK is right now than the US which I love oh Ooh, we're gonna from have a historical standpoint, my only point because 
Uh, oh no, it was definitely okay. No, I was I including I Europe I, in there. I was you, including I'm not, Europe. I'm not backing you down. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 for mm. sure, for sure. I, I just want to point that out. But I do think there's something to. I, I think you know European tour golf, British golf. You know, we went to Scotland. is is so much more egalitarian than it's the like watching American PBS golf. versus watching network TV. Like if you feel like you're going to learn something and you're going to be entertained a little bit, and you're going to see 56 minutes of programming per hour versus. 28 yeah yeah um but i also i the, the point you kind of touched on there and i think you know if, if the tour is going to set itself up as an entertainment product then i as a fan am going to treat it as an entertainment product and so one of my big things is i, I kind of get on ricky fowler and it's nothing against him personally but it's almost this storyline that I've created, and it makes golf more fun for me. Well, that's my whole thing. Is and if it's going to be an entertainment-only product, it needs to get a fuck ton more yeah. entertaining, <laughs> basically. Like, right now, they're, they're, yeah. they're in, they want to have it this way, but yet they they mark, they mark produce it, and, and everything and about sterile, it is, is possible this way. way. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, you, you know, you can't, can't have, have it both have ways. It both ways. Yeah. No. Um, you reminded me of my Twitter and talking of creating storylines. That's all I did with anal beats. <laughs> Which was sweet. <laughs> Made, makes Twitter more fun for me. None of it's true. Well, I want to hear about the content committee. Oh, Is, yeah. What, what? Oh, well, I definitely can't say what I said. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. In fact, the only... I mean, I did a thing with Henny on Golf TV last week, and she asked me to tell her a joke. And I said, well, I mean, it's going to have to all be bleeped down. You know? And again, I can't tell this joke because it's... Even to a US audience... <laughs> we can one of it if you No, you still. might know who it is, and, and it just... <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean... The content committee was a lot of fun, though. We'll put that behind the paywall. Yeah. How did how did that come together? And did you like write a script for that? Did you how many takes did it really take? Script was written. Okay. I just knew that I had one piece where I could say what I wanted, and it was going to be bleeped out. And Gibbo is is basically doing the production on Gibbo, Tom, uh, Tom Greaves, and, and one or two others. I mean, so you know, you've obviously met them. Yeah. Fucking great people and a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, it was good. It was. I is there going to be more good. of those? I think they're going to extend a couple of the um storylines like keeping up with Duffy. but i mean i'm yeah. not saying definitely that one but you know those ideas that were on the board there was they definitely didn't put a couple of things into the original scene i think actually and i remember thinking why haven't they put that in because that was funny i think they're doing it to keep it back for what potentially could lead off so it could i think but so um, a roundabout question sort of related to that but how would you uh sum up how the demands on your how are the demands on your time when you're at a tournament? And where I'm getting at with that is, I think everybody likes to say, "Oh, the Europe, you know, the European tour gets these guys because you know they're blah blah blah. They're paying them appearance fees. They're doing this. The PJ tour, all these guys would say no to these kinds of videos. They just don't have time. Blah blah blah." So, I'm curious how the demands on your time are are broken up during a tournament. Before you answer, I would argue it's the opposite. Oh, like the reality is the opposite. That the European guys don't get paid. No, well, like you may get an appearance, or like the U.S. guys going over there get an appearance fee. But no, no, no. I'm saying like the U.S. players at Bay Hill are not getting an appearance fee. So yeah. when they go up, but they're and having they to say, deal with a bunch of bullshit. But when they go up and they say, "Justin Thomas, we need you to come do this ask," he's like, "Dude, I'm trying to win a golf tournament." Like I, I and the perception is Eddie, you know, or or Justin Rose or whatever, you know, we're paying you six figures to be here, so you're kind of at our disposal. But there's a trust level with the Euro Tour guys. Too. When Gibbo asks you to do something, you're, you're more yeah, predisposed to do it. There's a strong relationship, yeah. I would say. Gibbo has a good relationship with lots of the certainly older guys than myself. Um, so there's that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think most of the European guys now are pretty are pretty on board. And I mean, there's been a lot of stuff done now. I think we kind of know all the tour wants the to be somewhat. The yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and don't get me wrong. There are definitely some players who aren't that keen on it. And there are some that are, you know. Um, I think the tour have been quite good at identifying who and who isn't and using them in different ways but um i mean you know the demands for my time have gone up a little bit but not not terribly you ever um, feel pressure to i say don't no get to paid six or, figures to be yeah. the only demands i have is the odd bit of chocolate in the room <laughs> <laughs> can i do a rapid fire european tour thing like how do you feel about the shot clock masters i didn't like it you didn't like it no i remember i remember seeing that on twitter and thinking god i you know eddie we disagree on something finally <laughs> Well, Why didn't you like it? I, I just, golf's, I mean, for golf to take two and a half hours, my, my big thing with the issue with slow play 
is if people have a big issue, if people think golf can take three hours to an hour, if they think they can play, well, there's going to have to be a completely different kind of game. And I actually don't think, I mean, if you want golf to change, great, change it the way cricket changed. Maybe it'd be good for the game. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if it would. I think you would dilute it somewhat. Um, so what are you going to do by, I mean, you're going to, a round's going to go from being four and a half hours to four hours. Well, four hours is still a long time. But, but so on some level though, I feel like you guys are, we're speaking relatively because the, the rounds on the European tour are far, like I would, I would venture to say far quicker. They than, feel faster. Yeah. Yeah. They feel faster and they're like, you know, but they're still not, they're still four hours. They're still they're not four hours, like, but yeah. they're not four forty-five or no, five I, hours. I, I, oh, but sometimes they are. I mean, I've played okay. around at demos five or five hours and we, it wasn't because, I mean, it was just, it depends on the course, the conditions. I was going to say, what's the cause, well, what's the root cause of that? Just the conditions? The difficulty of the course, course. and the conditions. Yeah. I mean, and then, and then, and then to, to piggyback on that, how do you guys deal with, like, is there a different mechanism for dealing with slow play on the European tour versus the PGA tour that you've noticed? Oh, I, I mean, we are probably, some guys in Europe are probably more ready to call out a few players for it. Um, there really aren't many slow players in, in the, in Europe, <clears throat> in my opinion. Um, and is that just cause there's more peer? I think there's, there's been more pressure put on them. Um, by not only by the guys, but also by the tour. I mean, you know, they, some of them have been fined quite heavily and they're not, not necessarily earning loads of money. So, you know, it's, um, yeah, there's, there's definitely a push from the tour. Which, I, which would be I hear what you're saying. I was, I was out at the players this morning and watching and was paying specific attention to this and was kind of like, okay, how slow are these guys playing? Blah, blah, blah. And it's like, man, the caddies are, the caddies are hauling ass. They're going to the next tee. These guys are, they're kind of, we're like not, none of these guys feel like they're playing slow at all, and I'm like, maybe it's just hard to televise yeah. because it just—it's not it an takes enjoyable four hours. stroll. It takes four I mean, it's not like hours. we're just—I'm yeah. probably the slowest walker on tour. Like I have a very slow walk, but I mean, yeah, around a, you know, I can't remember the last time I walked around a golf course thinking, oh, this is just a nice little stroll. And we do, you know, people generally do, yeah. Well, that's the thing too is with uh, you know everything that's happening in golf is making it slower. Like building tees, you know, a hundred yards further back means a yeah. further walk back to the mm-hmm. tee. Then you got to retrace those same steps to get to the next ball. And you yeah. do that on repeat for however many times. Like, that's, that's not yeah. time that you're going to get yeah. back. And it's, so that, I don't know. I, I'm kind of with you on the slow play thing. I think it, you know, it's an issue. And I think it's mostly guys that are not ready to play when it's their turn and don't act quickly is the mm-hmm. issue. But like, it's it's just hard when the when putts when it gets windy and greens get crispy like the four footers are way different and people have to mm-hmm. grind over them and you miss them and you got another comebacker and it's like yeah I mean would would this narrative have played out the same way if the coverage was different or there were more cameras what, on yeah, the course yeah. you know if you could just show they were shifting if the European tour didn't yeah. just show six guys on a Thursday I don't know if the narrative would be the same or if the you know if there were more cameras show more you could yeah flick and so. I just think it's a narrative that's been played out and, and it's trendy and it doesn't mean that it's true necessarily or the number one problem facing golf. But how would how would you react if you were like, uh, you know, I'm, I do want to single the guy out, but I, you know, I feel bad doing I don't want to put you in a shitty spot, but like J.B. Holmes, like if you were in the final group with him and he's taken close to two, two and a half minutes to hit an approach shot, like, like how would you handle that? From a from a a from a psychological perspective on your own side, and then b after the fact, it's probably I don't know later on with a bottle of wine on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same way Tron handles yeah, it. That's how everybody handles it. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple uh, quickly before we we got to we got to head to dinner here shortly. Um, but I want to know what you think of the new rules. Have they had any effect on you? Do you think they're dumb? Do you think they're worthwhile? I've had a sore back for a while anyway. So the amount of drops I took in one round in Saudi Arabia didn't help. Um, How was Saudi Arabia? The worst thing that happened in Saudi that week though, was it? Um, (laughs) How was Saudi Arabia? Oh, I wouldn't go. I I didn't, I didn't love it. Yeah. I didn't love it. No. Why not? It was boring. You know, a big part of my enjoyment of golf tournaments honestly comes down to the hotel, the food and the social side of it. You know, like that's the big thing obviously that's different in Europe. I mean, I always like to socialize at night glass of wine or whatever and that adds so much to the experience of being a, a golfer on tour you know than going in your hotel having your car going in your hotel room I mean it's just it's just yeah. I couldn't live like that so um it was none of that it was like a player's lounge all week and uh yeah whatever I mean but um I what was the uh on the rules the rules yeah. the rules um I mean like anything I think they're all 
put in with with good intentions. I can't believe for any moment that anyone thought that they were they were bad ideas. It's just as with everything, any policy that gets put in place, something happens that you don't foresee, and it makes the rule look all the law, or whatever, look foolish. And that's clearly what's happened. But um, you know, I uh, I know I tweeted about them being cantankerous old men that um you know, play the game, but I just, cause I didn't want to tweet anything about women. Please don't stop tweeting. I know you seem a little frustrated by it, but it is a breath of fresh air. Yeah. So. What, uh, which of the new rules most frustrates you or which one do you think needs to be changed? Well, I mean the, the whole how Tong and then the Denny McCarthy thing yeah. was just so blatantly not enhancing his, or giving him any advantage that to penalize him was just stupid. I mean, it's obviously stupid. So probably that one comes to mind. Yeah. I think for me, it's, it, it gets back to when you see that happen and cool, like the USGA and the RNA want to make things more intent-based. And then you see a guy anchoring his putter on his chest. <laughs> I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I only anchored it three or four times today. So we'll leave that one strong. <laughs> all right. We got to run. Thanks, Eddie, for coming by. Uh, it's great to have you back on and congrats on all the success and best of luck the rest of the week. I've, thanks, appreciate that. Yeah, cheers. It's gonna make a joke about go having my boxes this week. I mean, I wonder what we're gonna talk about in two years' time. <laughs> you can make the uh, you can make whatever content committee joke well you had, and we'll just play it out. We'll play the outro music right over top of it. <laughs> yeah, I could. <laughs> Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's. Better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect.